You're listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Tony. I have the privilege of serving as a pastor to young adults here at Southcrest. If you have a Bible, let's get right to work. 1 John chapter 2. If you have a Bible, and actually I'd encourage you if you don't have a Bible to pick one up in the chair back in front of you. I would love for you to follow along with me and lay your eyes on some of these passages that we're going to read. The title of our time together this morning is Obedience. Obedience, the confirmation of our salvation. We are in part four of our sermon series in 1 John. And we've come to verses three through six this morning. I wanna begin by asking you a question. How many of you would be willing to admit that you have a genuine fear of something? Show of hands, a genuine fear. It just creeps you out, you feel weird. I think it's fair to say that pretty much everyone in here has a fear of something, whether it be something really small and it just gives you the shakes or it's something really big and it crumbles you. We have fears over things like spiders. Anyone? There we go, man. (laughs) Snakes. Some of us don't like clowns. I thought about flashing a picture of a clown on the screen behind you just to freak you out, but I didn't want to do that. Some of us fear or stress over the details of completing a task. How many of you are like that? You're so detail-oriented, you care so much, you do something, and as soon as it's done, you're wondering, was that really good enough? Did that go the way it should have went? Uh, Or maybe we're simply afraid of the dark. Am I literally the only one in the room? Okay, thank you, brother. I know, look, I'm a 38-year-old man. I know there's nothing to be afraid of in the dark, but it's weird. We could turn the lights out right now, and I would start to freak out because it's like, I don't know what's there. I, I know what's there, but as soon as the lights go out, I don't, and I start growing in anxiousness, and fear starts to tremble in. The more I began to think about fear as I was preparing this morning, the more I realized, excuse me, this week, the more I realize that fear plays into our everyday lives. Every day that God gives you out of his grace is a day that you in some form, some shape or fashion live in fear. We'll talk about more uh, on that in just a moment. But I know this to be true because we all have something to worry about. We all have something to fear. To explain this better, here are a few examples. Some people may fear where their next meal may come from. Others fear if they'll have enough money to cover all the bills that they have for that month. Parents in the room may or may not worry or wonder if they're really capable or adequate to raise the kids that God has blessed them with or if they're doing a good job. And out of that comes fear and worry. And then we may also feel how, or excuse me, fear how a particular event in life or something going on in life may play out, whether it be a sports event, maybe it's an important business meeting or venture, and we overthink the possibilities, and then when we do that, we create anxiety for ourselves. Even when it comes to the bigger things in life, maybe like our marriages, we may 
going into our marriage or day to day, maybe thinking, is this really going to work out? Can I really do this? Or is this all going to come to a screeching halt? Now, these things that we wonder about and that we stress over, they are genuine fears and they are real. I'm not trying to downplay that. And I'm not saying that it's not important for us not to care about them because tending and caring for the things that God gives us is extremely important. But I feel that some of us handle certain things better than others of us do. For Christians though, we know the one who holds tomorrow. Therefore, we don't have to fear tomorrow, do we? Amen? All of those fears, the ones I just shared, plus a list of many more, a lot of those fears boil down to one common fear, and it's a fear of the unknown, a fear of not knowing what's going to happen, a fear of not knowing what will come to pass. Has anyone ever heard the word xenophobia? Xenophobia. It's actually a word that has a couple of meanings. The more recent, more modern definition of the word communicates a fear or hatred of someone who may be a stranger or a foreigner. But in its original context, in its original meaning, at its origin point, the word xenophobia communicated a fear that someone had of anything that was unfamiliar or a fear of the unknown. And as I was studying this week, this fear of, uh, of the unknown piqued my interest because fear really manifests itself in different ways to different people. This week, I read some research that was done by Dr. Emma Tanovic, and it was published by the BBC. In her research, she determined that humans are genuinely fearful of the unknown, so much so that it scrambles our brains. In her study, she posed this question. Why does uncertainty make us feel so uneasy? As a part of her research, she conducted various trials and tests to see how uncertainty affects the human response. She created a game called Uncertain Waiting Tasks. And in this game, she presented several people with different tasks and tests and different opportunities with the possibility of winning some money. So as she presented this, she conducted the research, but as she worked through the test and the trial, she added an, an interesting part. She gave the people in the trial and the study the option of knowing the end result if they so desired. But if they chose to know the result of that trial, it came with a price, if they chose not to wait, they would risk losing the prize money. And here's what she found. 37% of those participants were able to wait, meaning they wanted to wait and receive that money. Everyone else opted to know what was going to come. Everyone else was willing to take a financial hit to avoid the anxious waiting of living in the state of uncertainty. Now, dear friends, I know that that word is somewhat familiar to you because in the year 2020, in the months that followed the pandemic, and even maybe even still some today, uncertainty became a very prominent word. More than ever, 
in my own life, I feel like everywhere I went, everything I read, everything I saw or listened to, I would continually hear the phrase, during these uncertain times. And why all this talk about fear? Why do I begin this way this morning? Dear friends, this morning I'm here as we read First John to tell you that God not only wants to know you, he wants you to know that you belong to him. Amen? The Bible says that God is not a God of confusion, but he is a God of peace. First Corinthians chapter 14. Confusion leads to strife. It creates anxiety. It leads to chaos. But peace is a result of clarity. Peace is a result of faith in the one who knows all things. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Now, what on earth is wrong with us? What is our problem? Why do we fear the things we fear? So before we read our text this morning in 1 John chapter 2, would you grab your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 3? All the way at the beginning, Genesis chapter 3. I want to read just a couple of verses to kind of bring some clarity and context to why we're addressing the problem of uncertainty and the unknown and what God has to say about it. Many of you are familiar with this story. Genesis chapter three is where sin enters the world. Actually, I'm not going to read all the verses, but in verses one through five, we see the narrative of Adam and Eve being in the garden and Eve is at the tree. This is where the serpent comes in to tempt her. He begins by asking a question. Did God really say And then she answers, and then this is what we see. Look at verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Verse seven, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. But verse eight is where it gets interesting. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Now, I don't know if you noticed what I accentuated when we read that. I did accentuate the word new, and then particularly the word hid. Bringing us back to Genesis 3 gets me thinking about our problem when it comes to uncertainty and unknowing and how that creates fear. And it seems as if I've concluded that history seems to be repeating itself, even thousands of years later, because we, you and I, have been doing the very same thing. We have been hiding from God. You may have noticed that in verse 7, when we read it, it says that they knew they were naked. In other words, they knew something was wrong. Dear friends, it was in this moment that we just read in Genesis chapter 3 that I believe Adam and Eve experienced the very first feelings of fear of the unknown. They ran and hid, and they must have wondered, what will the Lord God do to us? Why am I naked? What is going to come of us? You can imagine the fear that they experienced. 
So when they began to feel shame and guilt, they ran and hid from God. And since we know that the effects of sin are still over us in the year 2022, even though we're forgiven in Christ, we too, like our very first parents, Adam and Eve, have been running from God into the darkness, continuing to be perplexed by fear, shame, guilt, and unworthiness. Christians are not immune from this problem. We have a fear of the unknown. We often find ourselves running from God further into the darkness when all he simply wants us to do, all he invites us to do is to come into the light and be with him. And so here we are, Sunday morning, January 30th, 2022, South Crest Baptist Church. As a church body, we are working through this first epistle known as 1 John. And we've come to the passage that deals with uncertainty head on. This morning, I'd like to address probably the most important question that you and I or any Christian could ever ask of themselves. And it's this. Maybe it's a question you've asked yourself recently. Do I truly belong to Christ? And if the answer is yes, then I think the next logical question is this. Well, how do I know? How do I know? How many of you in here would be willing to admit you still have questions and doubts about your own life when it comes to salvation. Pastors are not immune to this either. We are not perfect. We're human. We've gone through it too. But God confirms certain things in our life through the power of his spirit and through the word. John uses the Greek word just over 40 times. The Greek word for no. In this one epistle, he uses the Greek word for no just over 40 times. It'd be fair for us to conclude that maybe he cared enough about the Christians he was writing to, to write about the doctrine of Christian assurance. As we will see here in just a few moments, John gives us a few pieces of tangible evidence to hold on to. And maybe we can use as just kind of like a measuring stick. So go back to first John chapter two. We're going to look at verses three through six. The word of God says, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Pray with me very quickly. Lord, Help us now to worship as we listen and as I speak. We need a word desperately from you. We need this truth and this encouragement. So Lord, open our hearts and our minds to see it for all it's worth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you've ever read through this first, this letter of 1 John in its entirety, you may notice that John is attempting to address some problem. We'll see that as we continue to work through this letter. Apparently, though, something has happened among these Christians that is raising some questions. Something has caused many of them to question not only their salvation, but maybe even the salvation of others in the group. And we see this in just a few verses ahead. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. Maybe on the same page, you may have to turn a page. But John says this, they went out from us, but they were not of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So it seems to me as if maybe there was a group of people in this larger group of believers that maybe they were saying one thing and doing another. Does that sound familiar at all? To me, it sounds like human nature. Know what I mean? Like something we're very good at. It's entirely possible that this small group of early Christians were believing or proclaiming false truths about what faith in Christ actually looks like. And then they got mad with the other believers who were trying to stand firm in the truth. And then they said, deuces, we're out of here. We're just, we're done. We're not going to put up with it. And the ones who remained there, the one, the faithful ones were left to wonder what is going on. And this is what John, I believe is addressing as part of one of the sub themes of this letter. So thinking about this situation reminded me of what Brandon tried to show us on this stage just a couple of weeks ago. If y'all remember when he brought up the table and he had the soda cans, y'all remember that? Yeah. Brandon was trying to show us through a powerful illustration that, hey, just because we say one thing doesn't mean we are that. And if I could elaborate on that and take that one step further, I would say it this way. Genuine faith in Christ stems from a genuine moment of conversion from Christ that produces habitual obedience to Christ. Amen? Let me say it again. Genuine faith in Christ stems from a genuine moment of conversion from Christ that produces habitual obedience to Christ. I'm gonna elaborate on that here in just a few moments, try and paint this picture. So for the remainder of our time, Let's dive in. I'd like to examine these four verses together with you. And the way I'm going to do it is to present three problems and then three solutions. And we're going to hit on them really quick. Three problems and three solutions. And if you'd like to, just for the sake of understanding, maybe you could see these first three things, these three problems as three tests, things that we can do to examine ourselves to prove if we truly belong to Christ. So here we go. Here's the first one. When it comes to truly Knowing that we belong to Christ, we must confront ourselves with three questions, three tests, three problems. The first one comes from verses three and four, and I'm calling it the morality problem, the morality problem, or you could call it the morality test. In verses three and four, John says, by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And what I believe John is dealing with here is a problem of morality. In other words, our moral code. What morals do you currently live by? And he's kind of essentially asking that question to his readers. What are you doing that lines up with what you believe? Would you say that your day-to-day actions are based off of what you've been taught by your parents? Is it based off what you just simply think is right? Is it based off what is most convenient for you? Or is it based off what the world is currently saying is right and wrong? And the interesting thing to those four examples is I just shared them with you as I thought through them this week. Not all of those are always right. Some of you, as I shared those four things, may have in your head subconsciously and said, yeah, yeah, I do that one. Or, uh, yeah, no, no, living by the world standards, I, I've heard that from pastors, preachers, my mom's told me that, I don't, I don't do that. Or maybe it was, yeah, yeah, I, my parents kind of raised me right, I, I, I try and live by what, what they taught me. 
Now, the problem that comes from most of those things is that they are based off of a flawed, imperfect human condition. So for the Christian, where do we go? What do we do? The foundation of our moral code should come directly from the word of God. Amen? Specifically what God commands and what he desires from his children. So for the Christian, it should be a delight for us to live according to what God has commanded. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that. Heck, I know it may not even be our first inclination to obey God's commands. But when we do it, this is what proves that we have been converted. It proves that we really belong to him, that we keep his commands. And dear friends, no, it's a process. You're going to fall. You will struggle. You're never going to be perfect this side of heaven. But the word for keep, the Greek word that John uses here in verse three, means that we guard. We guard his commands which means not only do we live by them, but we hold a high regard for them. We protect them as truth. And we believe that they are the only way to experience true life in Christ. So keep his commands, guard them. When we keep the commands of God, we are not doing that as a condition to know God. Rather, it's an indication that we know God. Amen. So there's the morality problem. Secondly, out of verse five, I want to point out, bring to your attention that there's a maturity problem. John kind of addresses a maturity problem. The second problem that John addresses here comes in verse five, where he says, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Now, John is known as the apostle of love. He wrote about the love of God and the love that we should have for others more than any other apostle in the New Testament. But this problem of maturity is best understood when we look at and think about the word perfected. The Greek word means to complete, to bring to an end, or literally to perfect. But the cognate, the root of the word, means to reach its final phase. So John is telling us that when we say we know God, we keep his word. And when we come to know God, then we have a moral obligation to love others because we love God himself. And as we do this, little by little, improving day by day in this process of sanctification, more and more as each day passes, God is maturing us, bringing us to a state of perfection. Again, we won't see it this side of heaven We'll see it in glory when we get to be in his presence forever. So since God is perfect and he's sharing his love with imperfect creatures, I wondered this, and isn't there some type of process or maybe some way that this kind of fleshes or manifests itself in our lives? Because when we really think about it, we don't love others the way that God loves them. Amen. It's okay to admit that. I always teach my kids and remind them, hey, one of the first steps to fixing your problem is recognizing that you have a problem. So we've got this perfect God who shares his love with us and then he commands us to share this love with others and we don't do it well. But it reminds us that we need help. We need help even to be able to be obedient to that one command. So as we obey, God matures us as he is conforming us into the image of his son, Jesus. 
to say that you belong to Christ and have no outward expression of love for others is a contradiction. Those are two things that cannot go together. When you live in that place of, yes, I say I belong to Jesus, but I don't really care about his people. I'm not going to church. I'm not going to act loving towards anyone. You prove that you lack maturity in Christ. And that leads us to our third problem, our third test. John addresses this third problem of hypocrisy. There's a, there's a test of thinking about hypocrisy comes from verses four and six. Let's talk about it really quick. John makes some declarative statements in this first letter, but I noticed that one or two of them actually contain conditions. In this section of chapter two, John puts a mirror right in front of his readers and us for that matter this morning as we're reading this passage. It's almost like we're standing in front of a mirror and he's asking us and he's asking his readers to look into the mirror and ask the tough question. And here it is. Do you say that you love God? Do you keep his commandments? John says, by this, we know that we have come to know him if conditioned, we keep his commandments. In verse four and verse six, John is dealing with the problem of hypocrisy. Now, if we're all honest with each other, I think we'd all agree that we've all been guilty of being hypocritical. Amen? In some shape or form, at some point in our life, we definitely have. In fact, we could even go further to say that we don't like hypocrites. You know what I mean? We have murmurs under our breath, like, oh, well, it said this, and then it did this, and it just really, but we know we've done it ourselves. In verse four, John says that we fall into this problem of hypocrisy. And when we do that, he's telling us that the truth of God is not in us, and we then make ourselves liars. Now, John sums all this up in verse six by saying, if we truly abide in Christ, If we belong to him, if we are a branch that's tethered to the vine, if that's true, then we must walk in the way that he walked. And another way to see this is to understand, dear friends, that Jesus didn't give his life for you on that cross at Calvary just so you could live for yourself. He died in your place. He paid your penalty so that you could look and be and act like him. Amen? So there are three problems. Before we take a quick look at those solutions that I told you we were gonna look at that John gives us, I wanna take a moment to be very clear here. In an effort to be safe and to keep us far away from the sin of legalism, I wanna encourage us towards a gospel truth. We can't keep these perfectly. We can't. I think, though, it's extremely important for us to remember this truth. Because I feel like some of us will literally walk out of these doors in just a few moments. And we'll be encouraged, but we'll leave with the mentality or the mindset of, I've got to put forth every extra effort to make sure that I'm keeping these things, as Tony just talked about from First John chapter 2, so I can prove that I belong to God. But dear Christian, if you fall into that mindset, you're missing the bigger picture. So here's what I want to submit to you. The standard of the gospel is not perfection. The standard of the gospel is not perfection. Jesus did that. He was that perfectly for us. The standard of the gospel then is obedience. 
God crushed his son on that cross to purchase your obedience. When Jesus died on that cross, he was doing it for so many more reasons than just to save you. Earlier, when we looked at Genesis chapter three, y'all remember that? Yeah, okay, good. We went there so we could see that idea of hiding and shame and guilt, but I also wanted to go there for this reason. In that moment, before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, everything was perfect. They had a perfect relationship and they were in perfect obedience to God the Father. But in that moment, when they chose to do what God said not to do, they switched their allegiance to Satan. Make sense? And in our sin, we do the same thing. So when Jesus went to the cross, he went to purchase your obedience. Yes, to save you. God, praise God. But he went to purchase your obedience. And this is why it makes sense for God to command us to obey his commands. Because he knows that in our sinful state, we no longer have the ability or desire to obey. Unless he gives it to us through the spirit. So dear friend, if you are in Christ, know that you have the ability and the power to obey Christ. You have it. It's there. And there's one way I thought about illustrating this because I, I want to stay far away from legalism and enjoy the grace and mercy of God and live in that. And here's the way I thought about explaining this to you. How many of you love taking pictures? Come on, don't lie. You've got hundreds of pictures on your phone. Everyone's hand should be up. Okay, if that's not you, how many of you love looking at pictures? Come on, everyone loves looking at pictures of themselves, right? Parents in the room, how many kid pictures do you have of your kids? Or some random thing that you thought was funny. You know what I thought about when I, when I thought about pictures? I, don't, I like taking pictures, but I, I have a, I'm weird about them. Like if I have pictures in my phone that I think are not useful, I just delete them. And then sometimes I'm like, ah, I wish I would have kept that, but I can't go back. As I thought about pictures, I thought about this. Would y'all agree with me? And like pictures are like a snapshot, right? They're a reference of a particular point in time of something that we, we, we may want to remember. To show you what I mean, I brought some pictures with me this morning and I asked my family if it was okay. Would you show that first one? So this is Sarah and I. Uh, this was probably the third picture we took together. We were just babies. Look, there's no gray hair. I had way more hair then. Uh, this was the weekend before uh, I proposed to her. We were uh, back home in my hometown of Daytona Beach, visiting family. And uh, that's a picture I like to remember. Go to the next one. Here is an extreme close-up of baby Andrew. I asked him if it was okay if I showed this, but I know this is one that Sarah likes when she looks at it. It reminds her of just her first baby boy and how cute he was. Go to the next one. And then this is Care Bear and all her cuteness. Our first little girl. I like to look at that. And sometimes I wish she was that small again. And I could sew his cheeks and kiss him. And I love looking at that. Go to the next one. And then this is Nathan. We love this picture. We remember, I remember getting them dressed for the, that picture day and just wondering how they were going to turn out. And then when we saw the results, we were like, <laughs> pictures are great, aren't they? All right, go to the next one. Uh, this was in 2015. Uh, this was fun. This was one of our family vacations. I took them back down to Daytona and was, the kids got to see the beach. Nathan's maybe six or seven months old. And you know, I, I have to tell you a funny story about this. When Sarah posted this, 
to social media. She put some hashtags on it. And uh, it was like family vacay 2015. But then one of the other hashtags she wrote was hashtag Nathan needs a tan. Would y'all agree he does need a tan? (laughs) But what's weird is if you're on Facebook scrolling through social media and you read that, you would read Nathan needs Satan. (laughs) So we had to change that quickly. But this was uh, in 2015, family vacay. Go to the next one. Nathan does not need Satan, by the way. This was one of the first pictures we took together as a family when we moved here in October of 2018. Uh, Many of of you have probably seen these pictures, but I share these pictures with you for a reason. And also I thought about this. Have you ever noticed that when it comes to pictures, we only take pictures of the good things? Like we want to put our best foot forward and make sure our hair is right. Like we take pictures. I know like when Sarah's getting ready to take a picture, she's going to make a video call with her family. She's fixing her hair and everything. I even thought about it on on this level. Like I've never seen a picture of myself or a dear brother or sister in Christ on the level of, hey, this is a picture when we got in a really big fight and then I slept on the couch for four days. I've never seen a picture with a caption like that. It's always a snapshot, a reference in time that we want to remember. You can go back to the title screen. Um, But as I thought about pictures, and snapshots, I connected it. Actually, Brandon and I were talking about this this, this week as we were preparing for our, our sermons, but he, he shared this with me. If you were to take a series of pictures or snapshots of your own life and ask yourself this question, in those moments, in those snapshots, are you a hero or are you a villain? In that moment, were you Christ-like Or were you not Christ-like? In that moment, were you walking in the light? Or were you walking in darkness? Now, the idea behind this illustration and this question for you this morning is not for you and I to weigh out our snapshots of, yeah, I've got more hero than I do villain. Or that month, I don't know, I've I've got more darkness than I do light. Y'all with me? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah? The idea of this illustration is not for us to do that. I know this is true because we will not be able to take our righteous works before God on the day of judgment. We're not going to be able to say, hey, God, like I've really worked hard and I tried to do good things. And if you look at these snapshots, I've got more hero than I do villain. It's not going to work. The only thing you're going to have is credibility before God is the shed blood of Jesus. He did it for you. Amen. So what do we do with these snapshots? The motivation behind me sharing this with you and to take snapshots of your life is to see if your obedience is increasing. Amen? Are you seeing more snapshots of walking in the light than you are in darkness? And if that's true, then dear friend, rejoice. As obedience increases, so does your assurance of who you are in Christ. When you think about obedience, let's just get real. There are usually three motives for obedience. All right. I'm almost done. Hang with me. We obey because number one, because we have to, that's maybe kind of like, I don't have any other option. Okay. We obey number two, because we need to, that's like going to work. 
need to bring some money home, put some food on the table, so I have to do this. Or number three, we obey because we want to. And if you're obeying out of have to or need to, I would encourage you, dear friend, to examine your heart. Christians obey not out of need, we obey out of want. We obey not out of duty, we obey out of delight. So let me quickly show you three solutions. Uh, If you've examined yourself, if you've asked yourself those questions of morality, maturity, and hypocrisy, three solutions. And actually I would tie the word habits, three solutions to this problem, but three habits that Christians can do to conduct, uh, to see what their lives should look like as they conduct themselves. Number three, excuse me, number one comes from verse three. The first solution is for us to keep his commandments. These, are, these three I'm about to point out to you, they're not rocket science. They're literally right there on, on the page. True Christians have a desire to follow Christ and keep his commands. Now, I don't just mean the 10 commandments, although if you wanted to look at those and obey those, that'd be great. But what I think John really means here is that we keep his precepts. We follow the teaching of Jesus. We look to the truth of who God is in the Bible and we, we want that and we obey that. So we guard the truth. Remember, John used that word keep. We guard the truth of God's word and we strive to live by what Christ taught and lived when he walked this earth. So we keep his commandments, number one. Number two, we love God and we love others. This comes from verse five. We love God, we love others. In 1 John chapter five, we'll get there in just a couple of weeks, verses two and three, John says it very bluntly. It's almost as if I could have done an introduction and then just read 1 John five and then dropped the mic and walked off the stage. Listen to what John says. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Pretty plain and simple, right? So I won't go into great detail here because actually we're going to look more at this concept of loving God and loving others in the weeks ahead. Matter of fact, the sermon next week, we're going to think about this. And John's going to talk more about love and length as we get further into this epistle. But the great truth here is that we don't have to worry about trying to do two difficult things at once. We don't have to worry about loving God and loving people. Those are two very difficult tasks for a sinful creature. The truth, though, and what the Bible teaches us is that when we truly love God, the natural result of that love is love for others. It just happens, right? Amen? Love God, love others. And Christian, be encouraged. It's easy to love people around you, that, that you, you hold close, that are your friends or family or your, your whatever it is. Those people are easy to love. And I'm not telling you to stop loving them, continue to love them. But loving those that we don't know, the people who need Jesus, the people who aren't in church, the people who you work with or go to school with, those are the people we need to love. And in those moments when you feel incapable or inadequate of actually loving them as Christ does, know, dear friends, that you have an advocate, First John chapter 2, 1 and 2, who not only fights for your sin, but he also gives you the power to love others. Amen? Last solution, number three, comes from verse 6. One habit that we should develop as Christ followers is we walk in the light. Walk in the light. In verse six, John says, the one who says he abides 
in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It seems to me as if John is connecting the two ideas of abiding in Christ and walking in the same way he did. To walk like Jesus did means that we walk in the light because Jesus is light. Look at verses seven and nine with me in chapter one. Back up just a little bit. Verse seven, John says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. And then look at verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John gives us two specific descriptions of what walking in the light looks like. And I think it's safe for me. I've, I've kind of wondered this this week as I was thinking through this. I've kind of paired those two together, like in my own mind. I see abiding in Christ and walking in the light is one and the same. But the two things that John points out to us is walking in the light. Like, what does that look like? Have you ever wondered that? Like, I want to be a Christ follower who walks in the light. But what does that look like? Well, John gives us two things. And look, there are more. But specifically in this text, John gives us two things. He says, number one, when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I.e., we love one another. We love God. We love others. And number two, this is a difficult one. This is where people are like, ah, I don't want to hear this. I got to go. We confess sin. Walking in the light means we confess sin. John talked about that in verse nine. Now, I think there is something here that contradicts our human thought processes because here's what I've even thought myself, dear friends. I think when we normally think, what does walking in the light look like? What comes to our mind is this. Well, we're not sinning. And we're looking more like Jesus every day. How many of you would you agree to some extent that yes, you think that too? Head shake? Yeah, okay. That's not what the Bible says. To walk in the light involves the cleansing of sin. That's what John just said. So to be cleansed of sin, what do you have to have? Sin. If you don't have any sin, you don't need to be cleansed. And that's not walking in the light, amen? Walking in the light knowing the truths of God, knowing those commandments, knowing you don't meet them and obey them and you've sinned. But walking in the light is God shining light on those sin and then him cleansing you of it. Amen. Walking in the light involves to some extent having sin so Jesus can cleanse it. And guess what? You and I have plenty of it. So John helps us to see that walking in the light involves shining a light into the dark caverns of our lives and confessing them. Married people in the room, if you're wondering who that is, I would encourage you to start with your spouse. Confide in your spouse. Ask them to pray for you. Encourage one another. Hey, I've dropped the ball here. I need some help and I want you to pray for me. And then it may look like, hey, you've got, maybe there's other brothers and sisters or friends in your circle of life where you can just say, hey, I've sinned and I want to be cleansed of it. James says in James 5, 16, that when we confess our sins, we do it to be healed. I feel like sometimes we disconnect the idea of God healing us and confessing of sin. When we confess our sin, God heals us. So we've got to do this. This is just a part of walking in the light. 
Trillia Newbel. It's a young lady. She's married and has two kids, but she resides in Nashville, Tennessee. She has authored several Bible studies that uh, you could pick up and study, and you can even find some of her theological contributions on online uh, community at certain websites. But I read a quote of hers this week, and I thought it was helpful as we we think about confessing sin and walking in light. She said this, shame often follows in the wake of our sin. And if we are left to ourselves, we will mask it and pretend no grievance has really occurred. But one of the worst places for a Christian to live is in a spiritual ghost town where they believe that they can't share their sin with others. Our silence may protect our self-image, which is the reason we don't confess sin. Amen? We don't want people to know our dirt. But God's like, hey, just confess it. Cleanse you up. Our silence may protect our self-image, but it also leaves our shame intact and kills our forward progress. End quote. So how do we do this? How do we know this truth what John has explained to us of being obedient to the commands of God, trying to stay far away from legalism and just enjoying the grace and mercy and the power of the spirit of God. Three things I thought of really quick that I want you to remember as we leave today to help you learn to obey and to fight legalism. Number one, believe in gospel truth. If you're taking notes, just write that down. Believe in gospel truth and write down 1 Timothy 1 verses 15 through 17. Paul says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Remember that truth. It's gospel truth. Number two, rest in gospel assurance. Rest in gospel assurance. First John chapter five, verse one. John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Rest in that assurance. And then number three, live in gospel power. Live in gospel power, Romans 1.16. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. This is how we learn to obey and how we fight legalism. And this is how we enjoy the relationship with Christ that we have. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth. Knowing that we need help in this moment, when we leave, tomorrow, and every day after that. And I know there are genuine believers in here who have a desire to know you and follow you. So God, help them, help us to love you out of that love that you've shown us and that that love would be reflected to others. And Father, for the one who is struggling uh, in a season of life where fears and doubts may be creeping in about this or that, or maybe even about their own faith, God, I pray that you would reveal to them all that you have done and that they would rest and know and experience that assurance that you have provided them. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray and sing this morning. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. 